So um, there's quite a few questions, so I'm afraid I'll have to deal with the answers a little bit briefly. Um, but if you want to come back on any of them, do speak to me afterwards. The first question on the blue slip, I've just written them out on here, but they were on the blue slip. Uh, is there a limit to God's sovereignty? Does he actually allow the awful things that happen to people? For example, child abuse. Um, I want to say, to, in answer to that one, uh, I'll repeat it for the thing. Uh, is there a limit to God's sovereignty? I want to say no, there isn't a limit to God's sovereignty, uh, other than uh, that he doesn't do things that are logically impossible, uh, and he doesn't do things that negate our own personal responsibility, as we saw uh, last week. But God does overrule situations to stop things. We see that in the Bible, as we see uh, God stepping into history uh, and stopping things from happening. So God is capable of stopping uh, atrocities from happening. And I think part of it is we don't know quite how often God does that. Um, we think of the awful things that happen in the world, but how many are actually being stopped by God's restraining hand uh, from happening? Um, so God does stop things, but therefore when he doesn't stop things, he is allowing them uh, because he is powerful enough uh, to stop them. And those things are truly awful. We don't want to, to, to play down uh, the awful things that happen in this world. But if you think about things like child abuse, which is the example that was given, that's, that's really man uh, that does that. Uh, that's people uh, in their sin who, who do those things. And the Bible teaches that we're responsible uh, for those things. Uh, so there isn't a limit to God's sovereignty. He can stop things, but he does allow things uh, to happen. Uh, but we don't know to what extent he actually is stopping lots of things that could be happening, especially when we know how sinful man, man really is. Uh, and then on that same blue slate, there was another question. Um, there is a verse in the Bible that says God creates evil. Uh, can you explain this? So we said that God isn't the author of evil. Uh, the quote is from Isaiah 45, verse 7. I'll read it to you. It says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. That word calamity can be translated evil. I am the Lord who does these things. I want to say most of these difficult uh, passages like that, the best way to do it is to look in the context. Uh, if you look at Isaiah 45, you'll see it's about God using Cyrus to judge the nations, uh, a pagan king who doesn't even uh, believe in God. And here we see God bringing calamity. We see God bringing judgment uh, on nations. And we know that God does that. That's actually part of his justice. Um, so it's not that God is bringing evil, if you like, into the world, but God does judge the world. God is, uh, they're like, a, like a, a jail is not a nice thing, but it's part of our justice system. Uh, it's actually the way it works. And it's helpful that in, in the verse where it says, I make well-being and create calamity, that word well-being isn't, isn't the word for good. It's not good versus evil. Well-being there is shalom, uh, is peace uh, in, in the Bible. So it's the opposite of peace, if you like. He's bringing um, judgment. He's bringing uh, some violence there, if you like, instead of peace. So it's not good versus evil. It's calamity versus well-being. So I hope that helps to sort of clear clear that bit up. Okay, different blue slip. If we're praying for someone to be saved for years and years, but they're not saved, can that mean they're not elect? Especially for those we have witnessed to, but had a bad outcome. And there was a, a, two blue slips that had a similar question, and the other one asked on top of that, should we keep praying for them uh, if they're not saved? Well, could it mean that they're not in the elect? Well, it could mean uh, that, but we don't know. God doesn't tell us who uh, is in the elect. Actually, God doesn't tell us who he's chosen. Uh, so we can uh, keep praying for those people. And actually, everybody says no to the gospel until they say yes, don't they? Think about it. 
And on average now in Britain, people have done, uh, you'll be careful with statistics, but uh, on average in Britain, somebody who's from a non-Christian background, um, when they become a Christian, they'll have heard the gospel about 30 times on average before they actually put their trust in Jesus. So that means 29 times of saying no. Um, so I want to encourage you to keep praying. Yes, it's not a bad thing to pray for, even if they've uh, seemingly rejected it before. No, it's still a wonderful thing to pray for. God wants people to be saved. So we're praying in line with what God wants, even if we don't know who uh, his elect are. So keep praying, and I'd encourage you, encourage you to do that. Okay, another question. Can we freely choose to do good? If we're blamed for sinning, can we take credit when we do good? Well, my first question back would be define good. Can we do seemingly nice things? Well, yes, we can. We can do seemingly nice things. Uh, can we do things that please God on our own? Uh, no, we can't. Uh, wait until next week's catechism, or if you can't wait for that, um, Romans fourteen twenty three: whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So it's saying those, if it's not done from uh, faith in God, the things that we do, then in some senses it's sin, even if it's seemingly good outside. If we're uh, doing something to make ourselves look good, it can look good, can't it? If we give to charity, or if we, we do something, it's always helping an old lady across the road, isn't it? But if we're doing it to look good, then it's a seemingly nice act, but we're doing it in a sinful way, uh, aren't we? So actually we need to um, be, be um, trusting in God as we do these things. Can we take credit for it then? Well, no, it's actually so the Bible says that God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. So even those things God is working in us and he's giving us the faith that means that it's not sin. Uh, so it's not quite an even even side. So no, God, God can take the credit for that as well. <clears throat> okay, next question. It's hard to understand how God seems to stop people believing. For example, hardening Pharaoh's heart or speaking in parables. Well, we've been doing Exodus, so that's been quite helpful to think uh, in life groups to help us think about hardening. Uh, we see, don't we, that Pharaoh actually hardens his own heart uh, as well. Actually, God just sort of fixes him in the position that he's put himself in already. It's a bit like my mum my always used to say, you know, don't stick your head out the window of the car. Um, otherwise, your sort of face will stick whatever face you're, you're doing or, you know, don't pull fully faces. It'll stick that way. Well, it's a bit like that with, with Pharaoh, isn't it, in the Bible. He hardens his heart. And God confirms it, he hardens it in the way that it is. The problem is that all of us have sinful hearts. So as God hardens our hearts, he actually just hardens it in where we are. Uh, speaking in parables, well parables in the Bible function a bit like a T-junction in a road. Uh, if you read it through, so people hear parables and they go one way or they go the other. And again, it just confirms what, what they believe inside. It just confirms them in the way that they uh, are going um, without God stepping in and, and turning them the other way. So parables are there, again, just, just to keep people as they are. Uh, it's not as if God is making, um, making them something that they're not. He's just confirming them in what they are. Okay, next question. This is the second to last one. Uh, God chooses to save and not save, so billions will, of people will end up in hell. This is hard to understand. I want to say it is hard to understand. Um, I, I wouldn't um, say that it's not at all, especially when we think that within those billions there are people that we know, there are friends, there are family uh, in those, those group, uh, in that group. But I want to say it, it is hard to understand it, but we have to remember that God sends no innocent people uh, to hell. Uh, hell exists because God is just. If we get rid of hell, we get rid of God's justice because God actually knows what uh, sin is like. God knows how bad sin is better than we do. Uh, so actually hell exists because 
God is just. So it is hard to believe, isn't it, uh, that God uh, would do that in a way. It's hard to get our minds uh, round. And yet, we've got to trust God with that decision. I'm glad I'm not making that decision. I'd be terrible. I'd pick all my friends. I'd pick all my family. And I'd probably well, not leave everybody else. But um, it's better to leave it up to God to decide these things. And we've just got to trust him uh, in the end with these decisions. Okay, last question. Any suggestions for a book to read on the sovereignty of God and evil? Um, I'm going to make a suggestion. Uh, if you didn't, oh, it's quite hard to see today, isn't it? Uh, if I were God, I'd end all the pain. Uh, it's that book. It's just under a fiver uh, online or a good Christian bookshop. Um, and if you want uh, other suggestions, there was a, a, a note put on the maturity uh, section yesterday at the day away asking for uh, suggestions of good books to read in uh, in a part, you know, we get meeting up to read a, a good book. Um, hopefully I'd already just put one together. Um, so we've actually got an online bookstall that you can look at uh, with books that would be helpful. I've just put up books that are helpful to um, to read together, one-to-one, but also I've put this book on up just in case you forget uh, what it is. So it's um, available online uh, just there. Okay, I'm going to take a drink. <laughs> And then we'll look at our topic for today. So last week we looked at the sovereignty of God. This week we're looking at the sword of the Spirit. We want, uh, in, oh, sorry, we don't want information. We want transformation. Amen? Yes. Amen. So why bother with the Bible then? Isn't it just a collection of information? Isn't it just uh, the 21st century now and we have better ways of doing things? Uh, the book is dead. Long live YouTube. Isn't this the age of the Spirit? And doesn't the letter just kill? Isn't that what the Bible says? How can a dusty old book possibly change our lives? Except that it's not a dusty old book, is it? The way the Bible describes itself is as a sword. And that's why, uh, as our statement we have, it says the sovereignty of God at the top, but it's the sword of the Spirit. Uh, We believe the Spirit works through his word, the Bible, to bring new life and conformity to the likeness of Christ. But it should be understood and applied in the light of Christ. The Bible describes itself as a sword, and two different authors tell us that. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, you'll find it on the back of your sheets. Um, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Or Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So I want to say that the Bible is the Spirit's weapon for our transformation. And that's what we mean by this statement here. We believe the Spirit works through his word, the Bible, to bring new life and conformity to the likeness of Christ, but it should be understood and applied in the light of Christ. This is a crucial part of our identity as a church. This may be why many of you chose to come uh, here to Bethel. And we're going to look at this idea really under four headings, four basic ideas that are contained within this uh, within this statement. And the first is, Uh, The Spirit works through his word. So we're going to look at the word and the spirit. Are we a spirit-led church or are we a Bible-centred church? Well, I want to argue that we're both. I want to argue that actually they're one and the same thing. And part of the problem that we have is that we don't understand uh, the Holy Spirit well enough. Uh, The Holy Spirit uh, is uh, the third person in the Trinity but he's described in many different ways in the Bible. And the word spirit that we have, uh, we often don't get the nuance of it in English. In Hebrew, it's, <laughs> it's going to be hard, ruach uh, in Hebrew. And pneuma 
Numa in Greek. Um, let me give you some examples. Let me give you some examples. So Isaiah uh, 59, you'll find on the back of your sheets there. Uh, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, or my my breath, my wind, if you like, my breath is upon you, and my words I have put in your mouth. And they shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Do you see there that you've got the word, which is spoken, but you've got the spirit, but the spirit also has the idea of breath. It's as though God's breathing his word. And this makes more sense of what's going on in John 20, 22. I don't know if you've ever been puzzled by this verse. Uh, John 20, verse 22. And when he had said this, that's Jesus, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Seems a little bit of a weird thing to do, doesn't it? Jesus breathing on them. We don't see anything else like that uh, in scripture. But it's because the word spirit there can also mean breath. So it's as though he's putting his spirit on them through his breath. So God breathes his word. God breathes his spirit. The word of God is carried on the breath of God. And we can miss that uh, in English. So the word and the spirit are not as separate as we think. So I want to argue that to be spirit-led is to be word-centred. Why is it word-centred? Well, because it's his book that we're reading. So look at 2 Peter 1 verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit, Holy Spirit. There the idea, really, it's got that idea of wind. It's like a ship being carried on by the holy wind, by the Holy Spirit. And repeatedly, the the scripture uh, is quoted in the Bible, isn't it? It says, the Holy Spirit said this. We've seen it in Hebrews. So when we read the Bible, we're actually reading the Spirit's words. When we say we live in the age of the Spirit, in a way we're doing him a disservice. Because actually he's always been active, right from day one, hovering over the waters. And he's been active speaking God's word, all the way through the Old Testament. He's the very breath of God. So we mustn't draw a wedge between the two, between the word and the Spirit, because the scripture doesn't. So let me show you an example of that. If I can remember, ah, here we go. So this is two different passages. This one there, Colossians, like the word of Christ dwelling you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And there's Ephesians 5 there. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And then it goes on to talk about submitting or wives uh, at the end of that as well. Can you see that actually those two passages are are parallel to each other? I've highlighted all the bits uh, that are similar uh, as you go through. So they, uh, Ephesians and Colossians, it seems as though they were sort of written together uh, and they have parallels like this. Uh, So the yellow bits pick up on the idea of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The blue bits uh, pick up the idea of giving thanks to God. Uh, The green bits is the idea of it being in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then both of them go on to wives and husbands and uh, the relationship that they have together. So really this is one thing from two angles. But do you notice the difference? The big difference is at the top. Uh, there, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and be filled with the Spirit. Actually, I think by reading those two things together, we can see that they're parallel. To be filled with the Spirit is to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. 
In other words, to be spirit-led is to be Bible-centred. Because the word of Christ dwelling in us is parallel uh, to the spirit uh, filling us. So by saying this, are we, are we putting down uh, charismatic churches? Is that what we're, we're all about? Well, I should tell you that uh, the church where I became a Christian uh, as a child uh, was known locally as the charismatic church uh, in our village uh, because we used an overhead projector. <laughs> and the other two uh, churches in our village had used a hymn book. Uh, so we were the charismatic church for doing that. So I, I just feel I should lay my cards uh, on the table. But the problem comes in that there are three meanings, really, uh, four meanings, really, to the word charismatic. The first one is charismatic, like someone's got charisma. But then there are th- three theological uh, reasons as well, three, three theological meanings. The first one is lively singing times. And I want to say amen to that. Oh, that God would give us more passion uh, for him. Oh, that our emotions would be in line with what we're singing. You, you know the, the hymn, don't you? I've got joy and it's down in my heart. Way deep down in my heart. Yeah? We don't want to be singing things like that without actually having some sort of emotion uh, with us. So emotion isn't bad. Uh, and actually, as we sing songs that are speaking of the death of Christ, as we sing songs that are speaking of his wonder and the glory of God, then we should be singing uh, in a way that reflects the words of our song, shouldn't we? I'm not just saying that we have to bring in new songs either. We sang Be Thou My Vision to start with. That was wonderful. I always love standing at the front because you get to hear everybody sing. That's not a new song. That was written in the 8th century. It was written when the Vikings were just starting out. So we're not just saying new songs, but it's good to have songs that we can sing. What about putting your hands in the air? That's often linked with these sorts of things. Well, I've got no problem with that. In the Bible, actually, when people pray... The stance that they have all the way through the Old Testament and most of the New as well is to pray with their hands in the air. Now all of this can be pushed to excesses, can't it? We can sing uh, with emotions that don't match the words. Uh, we've had situations, uh, like I'm sure you've known it, where people just seem to sing every song the same as though it's triumphal, triumphant. There can be weird out of control stuff going on and we want to say no to that as well. There can be mechanical hand raising where everybody seems to raise them at the same time. But I want to argue, actually, we can be just as mechanical in not raising our hands and deliberately keeping them down when we want to put them up. So that's one meaning of the word charismatic. And I want to say, actually, yeah, we do want to have emotion and lively singing times. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, I think if you read the Psalms, for example, David gives you all sorts of emotions. I don't imagine that he just sort of said them really quietly uh, and just sort of spoke them through. Actually, I imagine he had emotion uh, in them. But the second idea that's linked with the the word charismatic is continuationism. Uh, And this is the idea that the miraculous spiritual gifts continue to this day. Uh, Just to give you another long word, the opposite of that is cessationism. Uh, And that's the idea that there are no uh, miraculous spiritual gifts. And I want to say with this that we're probably all on a spectrum here. Few of us would claim that we're in the situation of the apostles. uh, You know, with the apostles where Paul was... Uh, wiping his nose in a hanky and people getting healed by his hanky. I don't think people think that we're in that age uh, now. That would be one extreme. But I don't think very many people would go the whole hog and say that miracles don't ever happen today either. And that puts us all somewhere on that spectrum. And we might all be in slightly different places. Personally, I think it's, it's better to think of signs and wonders centering around the great salvation events in the Bible. So think about the exodus that we're seeing. Uh, In life groups, we see lots of miraculous signs there. The cross, we see lots of miraculous things happening there. 
But in other times, actually, through the Bible, uh, those things are less common. And instead, we're pointed back to the miracles that happened at, at that time. But I've got no issue with continuationists. Um, but I tend to err on the side of caution, I'd say, just because there are those extremes. Um, but there, like I say, we're all on, on a spectrum somewhere. But where the rubber hits the road, really, is what I've termed theological charismaticism. Which, don't, don't need to write it, just put TC or something. Theological charismaticism. That's the placing of experiences and feelings above the Bible. Using feelings and experience to interpret the world around us and the Bible. And this, I want to say, is the real uh, danger rather than those other two. And this is the one that really drives a wedge between the spirit and the word. And it's often accompanied by lively music, and it's often accompanied by continuationism. But if you think about it for a second, if that's what you think about how we know God, if you think that's how we know the world, if your theology depends on experience and feeling, then what do you pursue? Well, you pursue experiences, that euphoria in singing, that excitement of exercising a particular spectacular gift. And hearing God speak in the Bible can end up being put in the background. Instead, we want to hear God speak in extraordinary ways, through the prophets, through signs. And that is theological charismaticism, the theology of experience. This is my experience, now where is it in the Bible? But it doesn't always link with those two other things, with lively singing and continuationism. Actually, we can be guilty as well of theological uh, charismaticism. Whenever we say, I don't feel saved, so I mustn't be. Well, that really is being charismatic. That's using your experience to uh, put above the Bible and say, well, I'm, I know better than the Bible. Whenever we say, I know that the Bible says that, but I feel the Spirit is saying, then we're being charismatic. We're putting that above the Bible. Whenever we think, I know the Bible says that, but I feel, really we're being charismatic. We're putting our experiences and feelings above Scripture. So I want to say that that's the one that we, we want to avoid. Uh, and that's the one we want to take care that we, uh, we don't go down that line. So what does this mean for our church? Well, to be spirit-led, we need to be word-centred. The Bible should be where we go for transformation. And that's nothing really to do with how we sing. Nothing to do with whether we practice miraculous gifts or not. So you need to ask yourself this morning, am I word-centred? If we want the Spirit to work in our lives to transform us, then we have no other choice. The Word is the sword of the Spirit. The Word and the Spirit go together. And we want to hold them together in our church. So that's the first big idea contained in this. The second big idea is how the Word causes us to grow in maturity, but also in number as God adds people to his kingdom. The Word and growth. And one area that we really need to think through with this is the role of the Word in evangelism. Now I want us to have a look uh, at Acts 17, uh, verses 22 to 24. Acts 17, uh, 22 to 24, you'll find it. Can somebody give me some page numbers from the Bible? Uh, the Bibles that we've got? 1026 is large. print 1026? Uh, yeah. Is there one for the small print one? 540. 540 uh, for the small print one. Okay, so Acts 17... I'll read it to us. This is Paul um, in Athens. 
So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. But the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius, the Aragapite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So this is Paul preaching to a group of people who uh, have no uh, Christian background, no Jewish background. And it's often taken there are things to learn from this, and there are. Um, so he contextualises, doesn't he? We, we talked about that word a few weeks ago. In other words, he uses their culture, their poets. He starts with cr- the God of creation, doesn't he? He doesn't jump in at Jesus. And he uses local knowledge. Uh, he couldn't have preached this sermon at Corinth because he's, he's not got this statue uh, to an unknown God. And he's where the people are, isn't he? He's in the Areopagus, engaging with people there. But there are some problems to, to that approach. If we take Acts as a model of our preaching, especially our evangelistic preaching, then we would never teach Christ's substitutionary death. In Acts, actually, the resurrection is in the fore. So if you think about what he's telling them, actually he doesn't tell them about Jesus' death, he tells them about Jesus' resurrection. The death is merely there in order for his resurrection. Um, And actually what they uh, hear, if you look a a bit before, um, in verse 18... Um, some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, if we were choosing to write this, we'd probably write preaching Jesus and the cross, uh, wouldn't we? But actually, all the way through the book of Acts, uh, the resurrection is at the fore. So if we want to take this as a model, we don't preach the cross. We just preach the resurrection. I think we probably want to disagree with that. Also, I want to say that what we have here is a summary of Paul's sermon. I don't think we have the full thing. It says at the end that some believed. But some believed what? Uh, Repent, it mentions, yes, but there's no mention of having faith. Repent, but there's no mention of sin. Resurrection, but no mention of the cross. No call to be baptised, which is pretty much present everywhere else. It's more likely that we have a summary of what he said. Otherwise, it was a very short sermon. Uh, And I'm going on a bit too long if we're following this as a model. The passage, you see, is taken sometimes nowadays as proof that you shouldn't uh, teach the Bible to non-Christians. That's why I'm picking this one up. 
Because actually, he doesn't quote any verses in it. But I want to say, if we take that, if we take that as the model, then really we should be saying that we shouldn't teach the cross either. And I just don't buy it. The word of God is our double-edged sword. It's our offensive weapon. If we keep it sheathed as we, we go out and tell people the gospel, then we shouldn't be surprised when nobody turns to Christ. Think about what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. It says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learnt and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learnt it, and how from your childhood you've been acquainted with the Holy Scriptures, so sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying here to Timothy is actually these scriptures that you know are able to make you wise for salvation. If we're not using them in our evangelism, then how can we expect people to become wise to salvation, if you like, if that's what they're for? And he was talking about the Old Testament as he was writing this to Timothy. So we need to think about how we use the word in our evangelism. We need to unsheathe our sword with that. The other area that we need to think about is our growth as Christians. Uh, And the use of the word there. The word is our milk in the Bible, our spiritual food that we need to grow. So we need to know it, we need to hear it, we need to speak it to one another. Uh, I could dwell longer on this, but we looked a little bit at it yesterday, and we'll look at it a bit tonight in the course of your life. But I want to say that the word, the Bible, is essential for growth. So what are the implications then for us as a church? Well, if we want to see lives transformed, we need to preach the word. If we want to see the church grow, we need to preach the word. But what does that preaching look like? Well, that's our our third point. The word and preaching. The word and preaching. There we're really picking up on that idea uh, of understood and applied uh, in our passage. I've also added it explained in there because I I felt like it made more sense when we were talking about this. So we might have to look at adding that in. But I want to say what we mean here is expository preaching. That's what we're talking about. Expository preaching. What do I mean by that? Well, all churches say that they preach the Bible, don't they? But what do they mean by that? Well, some mean that they have the Bible in the sermon. So the sermon has Bible passages in. Maybe it might just be the preacher's thought for the day, but he sort of tags a a Bible passage in uh, with it. Or maybe he springboards from a Bible passage to talk about, say say it's about Jesus being a good shepherd, and then you get 20 minutes on uh, about sheep. Uh, and his thoughts on sheep and shepherding. And it tells you a lot about that, but not much about what the passage is about. So some mean that. Some mean the sermon is based on the Bible's teaching. Uh, so they, what they're saying is all true, but it's nothing to do with one particular passage. Uh, they might give one passage, but the sermon spends most of the time outside of it. What mean mean by expository preaching is a sermon explaining a Bible passage. Expository preaching. The point of the sermon is the point of the passage. It's not a new idea, so listen to this from Charles Simeon. He said, My endeavour is to bring out of Scripture what is there, and not to trust in what I might think be there. I have a great jealousy on his, this head, never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage I am expounding. So it might have struck you that what we're doing this morning is not an expository sermon. I hope you might have spotted that. It has the Bible in it, uh, and we are going to get to Luke 24, which we had read. Um, But 
really what we want as our main diet is expository preaching. Uh, that's why we didn't start, uh, as I started in September, with this series. We started with a, a series in Hebrews together, didn't we? Looking at it passage by passage. Uh, and that's what we want to do, isn't it? We want to explain the word. That was expository preaching. Now, it doesn't need to be a verse-by-verse commentary. That's not always what expository preaching is. It doesn't need to be a word-by-word commentary, if you're a fan of Lloyd-Jones. But what expository preaching means is that the point of the sermon is the point of the passage. And that should be what we want as our main bulk of teaching, what we want as our diet. And ideally, that should be working through books of the Bible. And that means that the Bible sets the agenda. God sets the agenda. Because it forces us to talk about things that we don't want to talk about or that we don't normally talk about. It lets God set the agenda for what we're doing. We talk about what God wants us to to speak about. And that means that sometimes we'll feel a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, we always have favourite bits in the Bible, don't we? I I could just pick my favourite bit every week. But it stops us cherry-picking what we want to hear. We might not want to talk about judgement or sin. But God put it there in the Bible. So we need to talk about it. God wants us to talk about it because he put it there. Doing it this way will keep us from error. Certain cultish organisations control what every church in their organisation preaches on every week. And that just means they avoid the bits that they disagree with. They avoid the hard bits. But consistent expository preaching means that we have to engage with every part of the Bible. It stops us becoming one of those churches where we just cherry pick what we want to do. So we need to have expository preaching and it needs to be applied. Now that's a misunderstood word sometimes. Application is not just go and do this or go and do that. Um, so listen to this from Philip Jensen. Some Bible passages are not telling us to do and we shouldn't be looking for something to tell people to do on the basis of these passages. We need to preach less about what we have to do and more about the wonder of what God has done for us in Christ. If I were a gambling man, I'd, uh, well, no, I'm not a gambling man, um, but if I was, I'd make a bet that probably the most profound sermons that you've heard in your life, the ones that have really changed your life, haven't been those go-do-this, go-do-that sermons. Actually, they've been ones that have been much more profound, haven't they? About changing your whole mindset, about changing your way of thinking. Because application can be implication. Changes, the way, changes in the way that we think. And they make profound changes on our behaviour and our motivation and our attitudes. But sermons should have some of that. They should have a pointy end, if you like. If the word of God is a sword, it's got a sharp end. It's supposed to go in us. Uh, The book that I was referring to earlier by Philip Jensen is called The Archer and the Arrow. And he speaks of application as being that arrowhead that pierces the heart. So if we want transformation then we need to penetrate we need to penetrate our heart don't we we need to have a pointy end to our sermon so we shouldn't expect them always to be comfortable in hebrews that picture of the sword is is out of it going deep inside us performing heart surgery on our sinful hearts and also applying the work of christ uh, there to us as well and that brings us nicely to our last point the word and christ the word and christ what i mean by this is that the bible it needs to be understood Christocentrically. Christocentrically. If you've been here for the Hebrew, Hebrew series, I almost don't need to say this. So we've been seeing, haven't we, as we looked in Hebrews, 
that the whole of the Bible is about Jesus. We heard it earlier in our reading, didn't we, as Jesus begins with Moses and explains all things concerning himself. He opens up Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. In other words, he's taking them through the whole Bible. He begins with Moses back in Genesis. Uh, with the prophets, that includes our history books. In verse 44, the Psalms are included, which means the writings in the Bible. Those are the three sections of the Old Testament. Moses, the Psalms and the prophets. In other words, he's saying that the whole Old Testament is about him. And we've seen as we've looked in Hebrews that it's not just the usual suspects uh, that we're talking about. Not just that he'd be born in Bethlehem uh, or that he'd be pierced for our transgressions. Actually, he's talking about something much broader all the way through the Bible. If you don't believe me, believe J.C. Ryle, uh, the uh, Liverpool bishop of uh, Victorian era. He said this, In every part of both Testaments, Christ is to be found. Dimly and indiscreetly at the beginning, more clearly and plainly in the middle, and fully and completely at the end, but really and substantially everywhere. Christ's sacrifice and death for sinners, and Christ's kingdom and future glory, are the light we must bring to bear on any book of scripture we read. Christ's cross and Christ's crown are the clue that we must hold fast, if we would find our way through scripture difficulties. Christ is the only key that will unlock many of dark places of the word. Some people complain that they do not understand the Bible, and the reason is very simple. They do not use the key. To them, the Bible is like hieroglyphics in Egypt. It is a mystery just because they do not know and employ the key. So we need to employ the key of understanding the Bible through Christ, seeing it Christocentrically. So what does this mean for our church? Well, it means that we preach Christ and him crucified. Whether we're in the Old Testament or whether we're in the New Testament. We preach him to non-believers. And we can just as easily, in a sense, do that from the Old Testament. There won't be Gospel Sundays where we're in the New Testament and non-Gospel Sundays when we're in the Old. We preach him to believers. We don't just change and start preaching moralism once we become Christians. We don't just use the Bible as examples for living. We preach our crucified saviour to one another. So we need to learn how to read the Bible this way. That's why I put understood. That's why we put understood in our statement. Not all of us stand at the front and preach, but all of us need to understand the Bible. Not all of us stand at the front and preach, but all of us teach one another. See yesterday and tonight. It's not enough that we have Christocentric preaching. We must have Christocentric understanding. And that requires our minds, doesn't it? All of us. And thankfully, God has renewed them. Thankfully, we're not alone. The Spirit helps us understand his word. So if we want to be transformed, then we must understand this for ourselves. I don't want you to be babes. I want you to be able to feed yourselves with the word as you read it. To understand it as you read it at home. As you read it with your family. As you listen to it in your car. Not just with you leaving with it on Sunday morning. So how can you be understanding God's word better through Christ? How can you be doing that over the coming weeks and months? So, if we want transformation and not just information, then the Bible is our means of transformation. The spirit wields it in his hand. We must must let it penetrate us, hearing it, reading it. Oh, that our hearts will be changed from the inside as the spirit does his work. We must penetrate each other with it, preach it, teach it, Praying that the Spirit would use it. 
What would it look like if our church was characterised by this? I think it would look like growth. Wonderful, God-given, God-glorifying growth. Both spiritually as we mature, and numerically as the powerful sword of the Spirit breaks into people's lives. This is the means that God has given us. This is why we bother with the Bible. So that we might be transformed, not by a dusty old book, by ink on a page, but by the sword of the Spirit, the living word, sharper than any double-edged sword and powerful to speak. I want us to close by singing a song that normally we sing before the preaching, but I want this to be our prayer for the years ahead, that God would speak to us through his word as we open up his uh, word day by day, week by week, that God would speak to us and change us and transform us. So we'll stand and sing, speak, O Lord, as we come to you.